Welcome to the Five and I'm on Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on this episode, we talk Annie Baker's 2013 play, The Flick, which won the Pulitzer Prize. It's about three theater workers witnessing the transition from 35mm to digital, amongst other things. I'm joined this week by writer Tyler Coates, who's been a former guest. Uh, he's currently writing for The Hollywood Reporter. And new to the show, old friend Eric Gildy. He's a New York-based actor and podcast host. He hosts with his wife, Ellen Adair, the great baseball movie podcast, Take Me Into the Ball Game. But first up, what I watched this week, I finally got around to seeing The Last of Sheila, which, whenever Knives Out came out, uh, Ryan Johnson kept talking it up. He showed he had a, he hosted a screen of it at the Toronto International Film Festival. And true to his word, man, what a great charming movie it's so it's directed by herbert ross which every time i go back to herbert ross movies like i tend to find some really basic charm and, cra- and craft and like what that doesn't call attention to itself he's a great workman with a light touch um but the script was co-written by stephen sondheim and anthony perkins and it has this vibe of cluish vibe to it uh, with movie stars, though. It's got James Coburn, a young Ian McShane, James Mason, uh, Raquel Welch, Ryan Bridge- Benjamin, Diane Can- Cannon, and Joan Hackett. Um, it's on. I saw it on TCM. Hopefully, you guys can catch it while it's still there. Uh, other things, I guess I was on a mystery kick this week. I, I watched... Um, Shadow of the Thin Man, which uh, I'm trying to make my way through the Thin Man movies, and I'm starting to get to the point where they're turning bad, but like it's still, I'm I'm there for Nick and Nora, so it's the charm is still there. the um, The most notable funny thing about it is uh, the dog tr- shit is getting way way worse and more ridiculous. Like all the gags, like it there's there was a sequence in there where uh nick was had his son on a uh merry-go-round and got dizzy and there's all these odd stylistic tricks to make him seem like he's dizzy and the dog gets dizzy and when the dog comes out to show that he's kind of light on his stomach they shoot the dog in slow motion and it reminds me of how i was whenever i was in taking my first crack at editing tools or film school even just where like everything looked cool when you slowed it down and you wanted to do it to everything and then when you showed it 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 didn't look right but hey it was an effect and and they use so many slow motion or reverse techniques for the dog that does not look right at all and the dog shit and the thin man it's 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 fine it is what it is the kid stuff um a uh, quick note on the audio. Um, so the main recording went out half for about 20 minutes section in the middle of this, and our backup also went out on that too. So there's a 20 minute section in the middle of this where some of the recording is a little on the iffy side. Um, I was so mad at myself too when, when the, the, the technical screw up just because I, I I really don't know if anyone's listening to these episodes at all, but um, 
the last few episodes in particular has been feeling like I've been hanging out with my friends at a bar after a movie and um it's been helping me through the pandemic it's just as it's every sense of isolation like I don't like like it feels like normal life when I'm doing this and and the only difference which is what it is is we're putting these conversations to posterity and out on the internet and I felt so mad at myself just because I was so happy to have this conversation with them and I thought I had screwed it up but it's there it's just a little marbly so um hope you enjoy this episode Tyler, you're in the middle of, I guess, what is ostensibly a 2020 Oscar season right now? Yeah, yeah. It's it's being extended into <laughs> February, but yeah. Okay, well, but I mean, like, what does that entail? Because, like, is it, like, whoever can mount an Oscar campaign right now? Um, I mean, I think that, you know, all of the marketing and stuff is still happening in this. Like, they're still spending as much money as they would normally, I think. Um I do like the same amount. Yeah. In a way. Well, I mean, the studios are probably saving money because they don't have that many movies to promote. Like Warner brothers will still have a couple things. Um, like I think that they have at least, um, well, they have Judas and the black Messiah, which hasn't come out yet. And the little things, which comes out the end of January. And I think that they are both going to be like, they're pushing big for those two, but I don't think that they have any other, I mean, any progress on the Paul Greengrass movie. It's playing locally here and I've been tempted to go see it. Um, it's yeah, it's out. I've seen it. Um, and it was, I didn't like it very much, but that's no universal. About it, so. Yeah. That's universal. So they'll spend a lot of money on it. I mean, I think it's weird. Cause like usually they spend a shit ton of money on, you know, I mean, ads in the Hollywood Reporter, that's one way. And they probably do for variety too. Um, and Deadline, the digital stuff. They, I mean, there's so many um, billboards usually around LA that are just FYC. But I haven't been driving around Hollywood. So you're I don't LA based. Yeah. What, what, last I heard is like one in five LA people have or have had COVID. Had <laughs> yeah, COVID. basically, you're testing positive. Um, but I mean, it's weird in LA because you're still seeing. Uh, there's still billboards for like a quiet place part two that just were never taken Ooh. down. Like, remember when that was supposed to come out? I've completely like, I don't know what happened to that. Dune yeah. Thanksgiving 2020. Still <laughs> yeah. Oh. So, I mean, that's really weird. And I think that like, I mean, honestly, I haven't loved much of the stuff that has come out like that are award season stuff because a lot of it, only it, a mother can love some of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is like the Sundance stuff that is pretty good, but never really gets much traction or is ever spoken about. Uh, it, after it, the there's year always like one, out. <laughs> one Sundance movie that's like decent, solid, and you're it's happy that came like uh, never very sometimes, always. Right? Mm-hmm. That's the one that I've been like on, but um, yeah. I, I get and I and without being it's 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 a it's a thing about not being charitable and be like this is genuinely solid but yeah um Eric my last trip to New York uh, I had just started this podcast and uh, I right. was telling yeah. 
and I was telling you about it and you were like, I'm thinking about starting a podcast of my own. <laughs> and since then, you've, you and your wife, Ellen Adair, have come up with like an, a great, extremely charming podcast and like... Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, well, I'm saying that not happily because it's it's significantly better than this one. So no, no, come on, it's it's not a competition. No, it's not, but uh, <laughs> well, I, it's it's a great podcast because like I love like the vibe of um, I get. I mean, I've known you guys for a while, but I get to see you as a married couple talking to each other, and oh, it's just, that's fun. Yeah, it, it's just charming is the word I keep using over and over. Yeah, yeah so. Uh, Tyler, because I guess you probably have no reason to know this. My <laughs> wife and I started a podcast last spring. We're both baseball fans and we were really excited about the season. And then, of course, when everything happened, there was a question as to whether or not there'd be like any baseball at all. And we'd been watching a lot of baseball movies at the time. And we basically bounced around an idea to create a baseball movie focused podcast that um, has an approach of like rating them a la uh, baseball scouts. Mm. And um, it's been pretty, pretty fun. And it's been like fairly durable because whenever we're I feel like we're capable of having a good episode on a really good baseball movie, but also on really bad ones. Mm -hmm. I feel like it kind of the the structure of it kind of can accommodate both extremes. You've deep and dive some picks too. Like we, like the X Files episode was a particular one where I was like, that's that's a great pick you guys got out of that. Yeah, one. well, I mean, we're definitely trying to mix up the era, the style. Um, so like the last episode that we had was on the bench warmers, which I don't think Ellen is ever going to forgive me for making her watch. <laughs> and like the next episode that we're doing is on baseball bugs, the 1946, uh, Looney Tunes cartoon. Okay. Um, wow. And yeah, we talked for like an hour and 20 minutes about it. And, um, after that we're doing a Japanese film from the fifties, um, I will buy you the uh, really film. Yeah. So we try to, we try to go all over the place with it and it's I fun. Mean, can, I mean, I don't want to like, no, please take, cut your hand, but like, what can you tell us anything about the Japanese baseball film that I have a copy of it? Uh, and I heard of it by and that. You're about level. to watch it and, and then it. there will be an episode of it and then you will. Okay. Yeah. yeah it'll be a couple of, a couple of week kind of deep dive, into the film and then we'll just let everything out um eric you also by the way have the distinction of being the first actor on the podcast because i have made a oh, point. no <laughs> yeah well, no no because i mentioned this last week i have made a point of not having traditional people who always talk about movies on so i haven't had any producers on and mm. I haven't had any actors on just because they're the ones that are always featured in the EPKA selling how a movie is made. Right. All the behind the scenes people making the movies are just kind of like there. So, you know, behind the camera. So, <laughs> so welcome to that distinction. Um, I guess right. let's, let's go ahead and dive in. So, um, 
we're talking about the play uh, The Flick, by uh, written by Annie Baker. Um, this episode is going to be titled Possessive, Annie Baker's The Flick. I first wanted to ask you, because I've made a point about not wanting to be auteurist with these movies and not giving a possessive title whenever I put a movie in here. Am I wrong to put a possessive? Because it seems like her relationship with uh, the director, Sam Gold, is pretty essential. And it seems like, like from what I've read behind the scenes, there's a lot of rewriting in rehearsals, which, I mean, this being in movies, I'm not in the pre-production part of it, so I'm unfamiliar with the rewriting, even though I know what happens. But, like, it seems like in it's pretty commonplace in playwriting. So is it wrong to associate a playwright with its play, or in this specific instance, is it wrong to do that? I don't think so at all. I mean, I think theater, mostly as we know it, tends to be a writer's medium before anything else. So if if you if there is a a sole owner of a work, I think it it would be the playwright. Mm-hmm. You're with you agree with that, Tyler? Yeah, I would say that. I think because I've seen a production of the flick that wasn't Sam Gold's, so. Well, we also yeah. we also getting to a point of um, I I'm a I would say Annie Baker is my favorite working playwright, and I have read I think all of her her plays. I've seen one production of it, and I didn't have a good time with it. It was I don't want to say of the flick. No, I've only seen Antipodes. Uh, oh, that is a that is a tough play. That is a that tough is, play. And that is a play that I imagine it is very easy to come up with a bad production of. But it's also, I, I keep reading that uh, w- one of the big plays that brought her up was a Circle Mirror Transformation. And mm-hmm. at one point, it was like the second most uh, produced play in America. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful play that uh, only needs five actors in a single set mm-hmm. is also a part of that equation. But the scripts, after a certain point are or aren't user-proof? Like, how does it... Well, are or aren't user-proof? Sorry, could you say that one more time? They, I mean, this, it seems like if there's a lot of rewriting in the rehearsals of the first production, like, and then the script that goes out to other productions across the country that are going to do it isn't going to change itself. So, I mean, they're going to be doing the same one. They're not going to be adapting it to... Right. Well, when you're doing a new play, it's an unpublished, it's an unpublished and not yet complete work. And I think it's not, Annie Baker is not unusual in that. I think most of the time when a new play is getting developed and that could be over the course, not just of the production, of course, but there are workshop productions, there are developmental readings. Even before that, Annie, I know, has like a group of several other just friends, like a lot of writers do, where they just sit around and read scenes, see what works. And there's a, it's such a big developmental process. And by the time you get into the rehearsal room, ideally you want to have something that you like think is production ready. But at the same time, there is, I think a director and a playwright working together will be watching the rehearsals. And at some point you just think, oh, this doesn't work, or oh, I thought of someone better, or maybe someone else in the room has an idea, and you sort of um, sand down the edges that way, ideally. I guess uh, uh, because the play seems like the like she's in, the big thing with her is the pause, right? So like it seems like the pause and the timing was something that would be hard to reproduce on other productions. And I'm saying this having only seen 
a non-New York-based production that I didn't think was good. So that's where my bias is coming in here. Well, she's actually gotten... Uh, sorry, Tyler, were you going to say something? Oh, well, I was going to say that, you know, the pause... I think if you read the script, her scripts, I think that what's very interesting about them is that they kind of read you know some plays i think are much more technically written than others you know they're they're much more specific about stage direction and what you're supposed to imagine because again i think you know people don't I, people read plays for entertainment but you're really supposed I'm to raise my hand yeah i mean i do too um but i think that you know from my experience reading her plays even before i saw the flick which is the first thing i saw of hers um I was really surprised by how many pauses she puts into like the text itself and that you're supposed to kind of imagine those pauses happening. Yeah. Uh, she even, I mean, back during circle mirror transformation, she was very like mathematical about it. And I mean, wrote it in some ways, almost like a piece of music in that in the, isn't there like a five second thing. Well, she has different, terms that she gives different values to. And she clarifies that in the like author's note before the play. And I don't know exactly what it is, but it's something like a brief pause is two seconds. Mm -hmm. A pause is three seconds. A long pause is five seconds. And it might even be like at least that long. And she has, I don't know, five different versions of this. And then she kind of specifies like, if you're not doing this, then you're not doing the play that I wrote. Mm -hmm. And I think as she's gone along in her writing, she's loosened that grip a little bit in terms of like that amount of specificity. But, I feel like I've seen some author notes where there. she, she some author notes where she does says exactly that. Like, you know, I mean, she put out the the, the specificity that you mentioned, and then she's loosened up on it. Yeah. And I, I think too, like you know, once a I think about the author's note in Angels in America um, because I have seen a bad college production of that um, mm -hmm. where, you know, Tony Kushner says like, basically he's like, it has to be magical. Like you can't just stage it and have like the angel just walk on stage. It has to be this big, <laughs> brilliant thing. I literally have seen, like I saw a college production in college where the angel like climbs up from a hole in the ground. And I'm like, that certainly Ooh. changes the entire text yeah. of this. Um, <laughs> no. But, you know, I think also there's, you know, I think that there's a period of time where like when a play is first performed and it becomes like zeitgeisty with the ex example of the flick and even Angels of America, like they both won the Pulitzer Prize and they become, you know, after their original productions, like they sort of like, maybe I'll use pandemic terms, like they become viral and go across the world and start being produced in almost exactly the same fashion as the original production. It, there, I feel like there's a, there's a certain like amount of time in between when like the revival process starts as people start doing their own takes on the text um, and directing it with more, you know, maybe not experimental, but experimental based on just like what the text actually gives them in terms of like the staging direction. So, I mean, you guys were both in New York when this came out? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. You guys both saw it whenever on its first or it was it, it it had an initial run and then it went to Broadway. No, it, it was, never went to Broadway. Yeah, it was the Playwrights Horizons originally, and then they extended it. Um, I forget the name of the theater now. It's in the. It sort of doesn't exist anymore. Um, but it's the one in the West Village that now Ars Nova has taken over the space. Oh, the um, New Ohio or the Ohio? Yeah. No, I can't remember. It's this tiny little theater. Um, it's not the Rattle Snake, uh, or I can't remember now. <laughs> All right, Tyler, I wanted to ask you, um, starting off, what was your first experience seeing the play? Um, so I saw it uh, at Playwrights Horizons on like a 30 under 30 event. So the, the crowd was very young. Um, I, I think I had read Circle Mirror Transformation and Body Awareness before. So I sort of knew, you know, her, her style a little bit, but, um, I don't think I knew it was three hours, which going in, (laughs) that's like, that can make or break a show for someone, I think. Um, but I, I like immediately responded to it. I really loved it. Just like off the bat and it was interesting the crowd that i was in because it was so young the crowd really really liked it and it wasn't until a couple weeks later after it opened that i heard that it was not really a crowd pleaser that a lot of the playwrights um the older patrons a lot of the subscribers were not into it because they just found it to be very dull they couldn't relate to they literally could not relate to the idea of people cleaning for three hours, which says a lot about the, uh, I think there's like definitely a, uh, a class commentary there, um, about New York theater audiences. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard her come back against this, trying to say that her, her plays need to like appeal to people over 70 to a certain extent aren't necessary. And she doesn't want to be ages in, in theory, but she's also rallied against this, just the, the typical, crowd that you're going to get that's going to support the 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 theaters there was a letter at this time that uh someone from the theater had to write yeah i believe it was the artistic director basically wrote a letter in defense of the play but also by defending it publicly he basically gave you know some sort of weight to the complaints i think from the subscribers um and i think a lot of I think a lot of creatives in the theater community were really turned off by that, by kind of allowing that criticism to be, I don't know, substantial enough that you have to acknowledge it with a with a formal letter. Okay, Eric, what was your first experience with the play? Um, well, the first thing that I saw of hers was the flick. I had read a number of things before um, when Circle Mirror Transformation was at Playwrights, I got many, many messages from friends, just super emotional. It brought them back to moments that we had in grad school or, you know, some similar experience that they had. And it just became this thing of I hadn't been living in the city for that long. And I either did not have money for a ticket or it was sold out which uh, that often prevented me from going to any shows 
but it certainly kept me from uh, from that. I did read it <clears throat> and I helped cast a production of it. So I got to know the play pretty well. Okay. Um, and I also, the same thing happened with the aliens. Um, I was really excited about it. Um, I know all those guys a little bit and was so like really excited to see. It. And like, yeah, it just did not end up happening. Okay. Um, so I saw the commercial run of the flick at the Barrow Street Theater. That's the theater that I was thinking of, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. I want to talk a little bit about format just because one of um, I love this play, but probably my favorite plays that I've read of hers is John. And John is framed in this very specific way where it's like it's it takes the that play takes place in Gettysburg at a, a bed and breakfast. And like it, the stage is like framed by either like a window or just like it, it, and the, the play keeps talking about this idea of like not knowing and that ghosts might be haunting the bed and breakfast. And the vibe is, is that the audience is the ghost that's haunting that or at the very least the ghost is this other the other character unspoken in the play and there's this amazing moment from the text i don't know the actual play itself and the performance but there's this amazing moment before um an act where one character comes out who's got some kind of form of dementia and starts talking to the audience and it's almost like this character is talking to god even though he's talking to the audience the flick very famously is framed the proscenium is the 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 movie screen in the theater there's a scene late in the play where one character touches the screen, but is there any kind of literal idea of what the screen is supposed to be in the play, or what did you guys feel when you were watching it? I don't know. What I can say is that watching it in the stage directions for, the, for that particular moment, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's a very simple stage direction, like Skylar touches the screen or something like that. Yeah, and it, it, it's nice because, like, uh, when I was looking at pictures to post with this episode, I saw the set for the first time, and it looked like a bunch of movie theaters I have not just been in, but worked in, too. It looked familiar. Well, so it seems like a very simple little observed moment in the text, but at least when I saw it at the Barrow Street Theater, it felt like in Sam Gold's production, it was a much more substantial moment. It was like coming up to like a membrane between worlds or something. Like it, it felt very highlighted in that sort of a sense. Did you, what was your vibe of that moment? Yeah, I, I feel, you know, I think what I really liked about her stuff the flick and John, I would say, is probably my favorite of her plays. Um, and I think that you can't really talk about either of the like you can't talk about John without talking about the flick, which we could get into later. Cool. Um, but I think that what I really like about her is that she really incorporates the audience purposefully in the play. And so, like that, you know, I think the flick does have that moment where, you know, you can argue that's her reaching through you know, making the proscenium, you know, this weird idea that like, when you're sitting in a, in a, in a theater, you're watching a play, there are people in the same room as you performing, but they are, you know, you're supposed to suspend your disbelief. You're supposed to imagine they're performing in its own world and you're just there 
you know, you're not being seen by the characters of the play. And I feel like in her, her perspective on theater, I feel like is always recognizing that there's an audience watching and that, you know, there's no, there's no phoniness about that. She's not trying to pretend that this isn't a play. This isn't people acting on stage for the entertainment of other people. But also while she's entertaining people, she's also trying to make them understand that there is a relationship between what's happening on, on the stage and what's happening, you know, in the, in the seats of the theater itself, that we're all kind of a part of this communal experience. And that, I think that's what I really dig about her is that she brings the audience into the experience of the play itself. Well, I think you're getting to the heart of why I want to talk about a play on a film podcast, even if it's about a film, just because this last year has been about this bizarre fight over the value of the theater like put into the front of like going to a movie theater itself and i i've been reading um jonathan Haidt a lot about talking about religiosity and and how it just kind of fundamentally goes through the brain and there's this like overlap i've been thinking a lot lately about churches and going to a theater both a play or a movie and there's just the basic idea of like I mean, I don't want to get into any kind of like spirituality or dogma with you guys, although I think I know where we're all three at but on this. But like there's a need to come to a room and find a shared narrative together that we can all agree upon that is, is fundamental in our brains. And whether it's just like I need to sit in a seat and have some mirror neurons bounce off somebody else and know that I felt an emotional experience to that. And that's why that's one of the unique things about the play where it's like there's the link between stage stage acting and film acting and i mean i mean i'm saying all this i've never seen i can't i can't repeat this enough i've never seen a performance of it so i don't know but this is what i assume this is like and and it definitely evokes you know when i was rereading the play to come into this it just really hit i it's i miss the movie theater and the other reason I love this play so much is I spend so much of my life working in a movie theater, living what these people live. So yeah, I, well, so Shane, that's what I want to know. I want to know like what what hit you as a former theater employee? Like what uh, were some? Give me some truthful moments if there's anything that made. I have happen. a I have a I have a huge list. Um, the big the big ones were. Um, there's a there's a, a speech at the end about complaining about working at the theater when all these 20 somethings are coming in when you're in your thirties. Oh yeah. That's like, it's like Matt's whole character or Sam, Sam, that's a big part of Sam. Right. I was doing the math. I was just shy of 30 before I left my last movie theater job. That was a big one. Um, there's, I mean, I was a projectionist. Um, and that was, and I became a projectionist around, this came up on the Eyes Wide Shut episode around 1999 before I was just finishing high school. And I remember projecting was a very coveted position. Oh, real, real quickly. I do want to ask, I, how many theaters are in, in, at the theater in the, in the play? Is it just a, a one theater? I think it's a small single screen. It's just, like, okay. Yeah. I know. assumed it was single screen too. I, I mean, I think that's a safe assumption. I would also assume that probably there aren't necessarily that many needed that many employees for a single screen. But right. um, but I also worked, um, made most of my living as a projectionist during the transition to digital at one theater. I was in, in Austin. I was in the theater that was the first 
theater just completely switch over to digital. So a lot of the concerns of the play I get and witnessed and was a part of. So um, there's a lot of other tiny things. Like when they talk about um, saving the reels, I remember very distinctly one of my favorite stories is the projectionists before back in the late aughts used to cut out every piece of nudity in a movie and made one single reel out of it that they called the nudie reel. And I remember being so angry and upset with them because they took a giant chunk of Eyes Wide Shut out. And I was like, that's ruining revival prints for everyone who's going to have this movie from here on out. But I mean, there's also just like little, I, I have a very vivid, vivid memory late in the game of projecting of one night there was a really crowded, our biggest theater was really crowded. And I was getting ready to start a projector and threading. And I remember a little kid that could have been more than three just looking up at me. And I don't know if there was a wave or I've just idealized it and remember there was a wave. But there was this like connection where I was about to show this kid something magical. Like I was about to show a magic trick to this kid. I remember feeling like really content and happy with it. There's a scene in the late in the play where they take down the projector and uh, they build up the digital projector. And being there that I was there when the switchover happened, like I didn't want to get too technical with certain things that happened in the play, but I can tell you that one went very fast. And one of the things Baker's seems like with the pauses, even despite it all, is still she's playing with time. Like that in something that's very cinematic even though she's playing into um, a real-time space with playwrights. Do you guys, you guys, was that how it felt when watching the play? In terms of how, like, the... the Did it feel like certain sequences sped up or got montage-like even, maybe? I don't think so personally. Um, I think that's interesting about the, um, about dismantling the projector taking longer. I mean, I guess I would assume that it does. That scene sort of does function on its own a little bit differently, but you know, so much of the pauses are really about behavior, right? They're about what's going on between this person and that person. And, you know, whether that is an awkward moment, somebody trying to say something, but being unable to, um, whatever they happen to be taking in, whatever is passing between those characters, I guess isn't um, as needed in that since they're both just doing the action of taking apart the thing. So maybe that's why there's a little more license in it. Okay. Tyler, do you have anything? Uh, I don't remember that. I do remember that there was, you know, part of the like a recurring um, element in the film or the film, the play. I have been so uh, close to calling it a movie this entire <laughs> time. So close. Um, is that like the projection, the projector like beams the light onto the audience. I remember that also being like a very silly complaint that some of the older <laughs> audience members, really, had, like they didn't want the, the bright light shined in their face. Um, but there was, I do remember there was like a, a truly different um, sense to the the light projecting from the digital projector than it was the 
the old fashioned one. And like that, like obviously you watch them break it down, but like that is another clue that's supposed to give you this idea that like digital is inherently different than analog. Um, and it was, I felt like it was a very subtle change, but something that still we're supposed to like leave the audience understanding like why this is it's so important to some people. Did the uh, light get like, warmer for, or colder from warmer get more blue or something i feel like yeah more blue more colds um maybe less like more more static in a way instead of like kind of flickering um i mean again this it's yeah. been so long That's since a, i've seen it but no, i feel I like have a similar memory yeah. yeah and like harsher i think it was supposed to be like i mean i think it, you were supposed to feel that this was sort of you know, I don't know if she's necessarily making a judgment call on it. Um, I think that she, when I've, when I interviewed her, I remember her talking about, um, you know, appreciating like the physical nature of it, that we're all gathered to watch this thing that is, while it feels ephemeral, it feels like something you're just watching projected on a screen. There is like an actual physical piece of, I don't know something that like creates that for us um and and you can change it because as you said like projector you know projectionists can take things out they can put things back in where you can't really do that easily with digital i mean i i guess you still can but there's a little bit of quality control you, you really can't <laughs> the, the one i remember specifically also after fight club came out you would do it in the trailers but there's some one people to put an sex in the trailer and what they would do mm -hmm. is like there would be a frame that said s then a few frames later they'd say e and then a few frames later is x in there and they put it in the trailer just because that's the easiest way to slice something in and that happened only one show because it was so blatantly obvious mm -hmm. that they had oh, yeah. Had to take it out. Tyler, I don't think I knew you, you've you interviewed Annie Baker. Yeah, I, when I was, I think right after the play came out, I inter I was working at Black Book Magazine at the time, and so I interviewed her for the site. Um, so yeah, we had lunch in uh, Park Slope, which is where she lived at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, we just kind of talked about everything about the play. I mean, I think that, you know, it was right, it was after, you know, the controversy with with playwrights and, and, and she kind of was pretty open about that. I mean, she was like, you know, it sucks that I have to, you know, and she was very open about the fact that like, she was interacting with people at talkbacks who were like, I don't under, I don't want to watch people clean for three hours. That's just not something that I relate to. Um, and I think, so you know, it, it really speaks to, and I think that that, you know, the flick, was the last show that she did with Playwrights Horizons. And I think that that definitely had a role in her moving to the signature theater where she ended up getting um, a residency. And so John and the Antipodes were both produced there. Um, and I think the Antipodes was the first one that she, that wasn't directed by Sam Gold. That's right. Um, Lila Neugebauer directed it. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting. I mean, th this gets into like, I guess the, 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 the nonprofit theater industry, <laughs> but you know, if you look at where like geographically where the signature theater is based on like the proximity to Broadway and where all the theaters in the Broadway theaters are, it's pretty far West on 42nd street, farther West than playwrights. It feels mm -hmm. like you're going to the end of the earth when you're going to that theater. Um, and I always found that very interesting because I feel like playwrights is sort of 
as an institution is still like one of the cooler, hipper nonprofits. I think if you're comparing it to like Manhattan Theater Club, which is pretty oh, one hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And like they're gonna do a lot of like they they they're sort of like Steppenwolf and that a lot of what they do, the Manhattan Theater Clubs of the world are are gonna do a lot of like five right. dysfunctional family plays all set in one room, you know. White, white people in crisis. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like Richard Greenberg plays. <laughs> and which are great. I like Richard Greenberg, but Annie Baker I felt like was representative of a new crowd of, you know, Gen X cusp millennial playwrights who were doing something that were playing with the format of of theater in a way that was really exciting. And I think that you know, it was really baffling to me hearing how many people didn't like the flick because I loved it so much. And also the crowd that I was with for the 30, like under 35 crowd were also like really into it. Um, I was riveted by it. Yeah. I don't understand when people talk about how nothing happens or how it's boring. Like it is so completely full of activity and little nuanced things going on between everybody all the time. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not like I, I left wanting to go to it again. Right. Okay. Um, so wait, Tyler, you were, you, you left that interview thinking that she wasn't making a value judgment on the analog versus digital. No, it, I mean, in, in a way, in of hers, it seems like she was. I think that she, you know, I think that she, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm projecting a little bit of myself as someone who, as a writer, I feel like people have often thought that I was issuing value judgments where I was just trying to like sort of describe, okay. Okay. describe a controversy or describe why people feel the way they feel in response to something. Um, I mean, I do think that she, I know that she loves movies and there's, there's an element to that. I think that. And I think that it was probably the, I think the flick was probably the first time that I started to like even be aware of this discussion about, you know, moving from analog to digital and what that means. Because for me, you know, I just don't have the eye or the understanding to like tell when something is really, when something's been shot on film is being projected on film. One point I always remember feeling as someone had to work it physically was that one thing we always used to dread as projectionists was um, uh, scratching a print. And mm -hmm. you scratch a print, it's scratched forever. And when you right. have digital, it was never going to get scratched. And there was also a vibe I had being involved, starting to get involved with movies. I knew how the switch in the aughts had been from chemically color timing movies to digitally color timing it. And mm -hmm. it gave more specific control to directors of photography and so even when it was still prints they were printing them out digitally onto physical print so it was still digital dig it was still digital intermediates being printed onto these physical things so it still looked digital and in digital what usually happens is um when you get to very excessively high whites or excessively dark blacks on a screen um in the contrast thing they start to blend together and not differentiate. So a movie like The Godfather doesn't really do really well digitally. But gotcha. if you go to a print, you know, you see all that darkness in there. You're going to see many more dimensions in the darkness there. 
but it, by that point, it's it was just becoming a economic point. Like it was just cheaper. Like a print costs like fifteen hundred dollars, and when you sent out a digital uh, mo movie, it was just a hard drive, and you could make as many prints in the theater as you wanted out of that hard drive. So you right. could send it over and over and over. Um, just a quick thought about Annie Baker and this particular digital versus analog question. I bet she probably has some opinion. It might not be a strong one, but I bet she does. I think it is very intentional that the play, I don't, I think the play tries to be on everybody's side. Mm. And so to be on everybody's side, I don't think you can have it be this play firmly believes this. Like, I think that there are definitely, there is a sort of like romantic quality to this old film projecting theater. Um, and so I, I guess it probably skews a little bit that way. But like, I think that the character of Sam is someone who also really likes movies and it isn't as big of a deal. He literally says at one point, I don't care. Yeah. I tell the difference. And I don't know. There are moments where I feel like um, we're like, we're kind of on Avery's side as far as his defense of it. But the play also, I, I think personally does plenty of things also to convey that like he's a kid and he's still figuring stuff out. That whole argument that he has that, the last great American film was Pulp Fiction, I think like makes my ears ring with a certain type of like very smart, very enthusiastic, very young. Very dogmatic, very, very, very absolutist. I yeah. worked on a short film last summer um, with a number of people that were all pretty young. This was kind of like a short film from people who pretty recently graduated film school. And um, I was talking with the uh, DP and was like, so, um, hey man, like, let's talk movies. What are some of your favorite films? And he, he goes, well, Citizen Kane. And, um, you know, like to me, the Pulp Fiction moment is like a little bit like that. And once you start pulling at the thread a little bit of like, so what are some of your favorite things about Citizen Kane? You're like, oh, well, I mean, you know, it, it, it changed everything and just people sort of like it. People find it, hold uh, it in high esteem. It's the answer that they think they should have. Yeah. Or or it is an answer that sort of betrays, um, I don't know, their depth of knowledge within the thing that they're talking about. Which, to be fair, is all they're going to have at a young age, as you yeah. as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're on the side of the film and the romantic qualities of that, but like we also have Annie Baker like inserting that into Avery so that we're not fully on his side either, I think. Does, does, mm. it, does it fulfill the purpose of like a passing of a season or the passing of a time that you would feel in a story like this, where it's just an age, is, this is about an age moving from one era to another? Well, I think something that I think about a lot lately is that, um, and I'm going to literally quote The Sopranos, not that I even like The Sopranos that much. I have not watched all of it, but I I watched, I started watching it 
last year and i remember from the pilot i'm so proud of you tyler yeah there i as tony soprano says like i feel like i'm at the end of something and okay and dr melfi is like literally everyone feels that way <laughs> like there's that is like a sort of universal truth that like especially for creative people they feel like the best has already happened there's nothing new for them to do and also there's know, actually a psychological phenomenon for it it's called the end yeah. of history yeah i mean i think like it's easy to think about like oh god like if i were just five years older my career would look so different or if i were five years younger i would have so many different like opportunities because i would have learned something different like in my like i don't know my learning stage where i was easy where it was easier to pick up on new things um and i think that 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 plays that role a little bit is that you know, Avery is having this like kind of existential crisis that has truly nothing to do with film, but that's what he's placing it onto. That's like the easiest way for him to contextualize it, for him to make it feel like it's an actual real object, maybe that this like mm -hmm. physical thing that he loves, that is representative of something he loves so much is dying and it's going to change what he loves so much forever and he'll never be able to experience it again. I think that's a very extreme, like terrified person's perspective of this. Because again, at the end of the day, it is movies and movies will always be around in some format. And there's probably gonna be a way that you can see a film projected on screen again. I love more, your optimism. More often than not, it. yeah. But I mean, yes, this is me being almost uncharacteristically optimist. But uh, no, no, and I, I 100 percent agree yeah. with it, and I'm being facetious and sarcastic. But yeah, it's I, totally, of course. That, that's sort of what that's what I really responded to from the play. You know, it it is truly about two young people and one sort of older person who's not that old, really, in in the grand scheme of things. He's really, 35 in the play. Yeah, I know it's terrifying. Yeah, I think when I first saw it, I was 29, and now I'm. 37 so um, <laughs> one of my favorite parts of the play is when avery asks sam what do you want to be when you grow up and avery, and sam says that's the most depressing question I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. something like that <laughs> right and yeah i think that that's just like a, a natural thing that people go through is this feeling that like everything around them that they know and love is over and they will never experience that joy again. And in reality, it's like, you will, it's just going to be different. And that's fine. And if you're going through other stuff and you're projecting that onto that thing, then the disappearance of that thing means like you don't have that shield anymore. Like you have to either find a new thing or sit in whatever it is that you're projecting onto this other be, or something. be with yourself be quiet with yourself yeah, right. yeah literally this conversation and hearing people like describing projection as like the act of putting your feelings onto something else while we're talking about a show wow that yeah. Yeah. never occurred to me that's good wow. yeah 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 The reason I brought up her opinion on this was because I had read that um, one of the areas she, re one of the, I, uh, the places she first thought of the play was seeing a DCP of Fanny, a digital version of Fanny and Alexander, mm. uh, the Bergen mm. movie. And I am a big fan of, after I started getting into her writing, 
like she seems to have a really interesting film like she's as you mentioned tyler she is a film fan and she has a criterion list that is really fascinating um the big movie i got from this was the chantal ackerman movie uh, uh jean delmon like i had never seen that and when i saw that that seemed to be very oh i get what she's if she made a movie i get what she's trying to do um, I've also read that she was a big uh, Francophile, French New Wave uh, fan as a teenager, and there's a lot of overlap there. But I know specifically with like Fanny and Alexander, I always feel bad because I first saw Fanny and Alexander really, really late in the game. I saw a print of it. I made back when digital was around. I saw a print of it back when I was still in Austin. Uh, Richard Linklater used to have these 80s festivals where he, he called them Jewels in the Wasteland, and he would do a Q and A afterward where they show an actual print. And I got to see. Fanny Alexander, and Fanny Alexander is a favorite of a lot of filmmakers I admire, and I can't get into Fanny Alexander for the life of me. And it, it's, it strikes me as like a lot of Bergman, where it's like, I mean, I like a lot of the big things in the 50s that seem to get to people, but his work always seems to me very um, cold and judgy and masculine and unforgiving of, or uh, ungenerous towards his characters. Um, have any of you guys seen this list? Have you or any of the movies on there? I really haven't. The only one that I have any familiarity with is Vanya on 42nd Street. And even that, it's been a while. So I... <laughs> Didn't she do a, a, a adaptation, a checkoff adaptation? Yeah, mm-hmm. she did that for Vanya. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, that was where what that was in such a tiny space was that i think that was the soho theater okay yeah 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 um yeah that was another very high profile thing mm-hmm. a bunch of these movies came up i want i think it's um i think it's act one scene six like some of these come up when the there's a description of a dream and they talk about um trying like being surrounded by favorite films and um trying to scan them it's there's, a uh, dream about yeah like getting there's, into heaven right or yeah yeah and there's a there's a mention of barry Lyndon, which isn't on the list but then he gets stuck having to watch uh honeymoon in vegas or honeymoon in vegas is the only movie he has access to i think it was yeah, yeah. that's such a beautiful moment and i feel like it's a moment of him kind of contending with this person that he is trying to be or trying to present himself as this very like wonky film buff guy. And in that moment, he's disgusted at the fact that the movie that like represents him, that will let him move on is honeymoon in Vegas, which he hates. But then he catches himself and is like, but if honeymoon in Vegas is the thing that like gets me to heaven, like that's okay. Right. I mean, you got into heaven. And I feel like that's a moment of him, like, I don't know, um, um, doing a little evaluation of himself in a very, you know, dreamy kind of way. I've been thinking a lot lately that, especially in terms of snobbery and this year making me rethink everything, just like, I can't be snobbish about movies anymore because everyone likes movies. They just don't, we don't always like the same movies and the same criteria we have of what makes a good movie doesn't always apply to every single person too. And you know, we, there has never been a time where it has been more okay for it, for you to not like a movie. There Mm -hmm. is so much, 
stuff out there it's so easy to get your hands on like people i mean this is not to say that people should just you know stick in their own alleys or whatever like it's good to watch new and different things and figure out what you like and what you don't like but like i think whatever snobbishness that i have had in those kinds of tastes has also like very much gone out the window because like I feel like there's a lot of good versions of whatever your proclivities are. I've been feeling good because I feel like I have a head start just because um, I professionally have to worry about what people like. And then I've been one of the most things as I've gotten to editing, I found how humbling it is. It's like you never know. And Mm. what you think is going to blow people away doesn't. What people like, they like, they can't explain it. Sometimes no one can explain why they like what they like. But it's it's almost an objective fact. If you're in a room when a movie works or when a movie doesn't work, the air, the molecules move differently and everyone can feel it. And if someone's seen that movie before and is waiting to like anticipate it or feel it, they can feel it. They can totally feel it. Um, so the other reason I brought up this list is there's a lot of... Um, New, French New Wave stuff with uh, uh, Georges Delarue on there. And a lot of the composer who did a lot of the music for Truffaut and he did some stuff for Godard. There's two pieces in the play from Delarue. There's um, there's like, uh, I think they're both from Jules and Jim. And um, that mm-hmm. same year that this first debuted, um, Francis Ha came out. And Francis Ha very famously has a ton of reutilized Georges Delarue on there. Um, I didn't necessarily want to get too gossipy on the Bombach connection here, but do you guys see any overlap on this? I mean, or is it too early and too premature for that? Um, well, I mean, I know the Bombach connection from the gossipy standpoint, I guess. I mean, she did write the, I think that, um, she also wrote an essay on Criterion for wrote Francis the, Ha. Yeah. She wrote the Francis Ha essay. And I think that, I don't know like how like the connections happened, but I do know that she was sort of shadowing him on while we're young, which is why she has a cameo in it, right? She has a cameo in it. And that's sort of the first, I would say that's his first movie of his like sort of recent, recent features that he like really started tapping into that kind of like off Broadway acting scene that she was sort of related to like because uh, while we're young shot there. before francis Hodd, didn't it because while we're young was in the edit for a long time i think oh was it i was i not, think it, that might be true yeah um but i feel like that those that was when he started casting a lot of people from i feel like her cohort um okay. like matthew myers and a couple of his movies now He's uh, the, is he the editor in while we're young i think it is uh yes i think that's right and then he's in he's part of the theater troupe in marriage marriage right um of that of that ilk um but i think that i mean i i watched because there were no good movies that came out last year i watched a lot of old stuff on criterion that i'd never seen before and so i was going through like a eric romer week really i I was going to come up yeah and i was like oh this is like I, there's it made me appreciate i mean i like noah Baumbach a lot i think it's very funny there are very few of his movies that i just like truly don't like um but he 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 reminds me a lot of eric romer in terms of his personality yeah. his humor 
like just I don't know. I, I and I think he it's almost kind of making fun of Eric Romer a little bit because I think that Bombeck kind of knows when a male character is being ridiculous and he doesn't <laughs> okay, okay, do it in okay, a way okay. that's like <laughs> he's the hero and like the women who are fucking him over are like awful, which is sort of what I get from like Love in the Afternoon in a little bit of a way. Have you seen, uh, um, she's mentioned a few times, uh, The Green Ray. Have you seen that? I watched that twice last year. I loved it's, The Green Ray. I saw it way, like, um, it's it's like, I think it's the only 80s movies, Romare movie I've seen, but like, um, I saw it, it was called by its North American title, Summer, which mm-hmm. I thought, he later made a season, uh, series of four movies in the 90s, but I thought this was a part of it. But I remember, I, it was when I was in the middle of Austin and like really big into Linklater. And Linklater was one of the reasons I moved to Austin. And I just remember this, well, first off, Summer has, or the Green Ray has this amazingly touching ending that was kind of reused in Before Midnight. But like, it's, it's just a beautiful sequence that ends the movie. But I remember that feeling from Linklater, from Romare, from Bombach. And what I think if she ends up making um, some movies, what I think is going to come from her too, this feeling that putting a camera on a person from a selected vantage, to be fair, it it can be close, it can be far away, but putting a camera on a person and listening to them talk and maybe explain their soul can be very cinematic. You know, you have people like Hitchcock or Brian De Palma that will push this idea that talking is inherently uncinematic because what it does is explain the story or it verbalizes what you're seeing that doesn't necessarily have to be true what a person says and doesn't says say can be inherently cinematic and i feel like if she starts making movies on her own which she's has some promises of that's what might end up being when she does it yeah i would say i mean i just it's funny you talk about not not talking be, or talking being cinematic or not talking. I, I just interviewed Eliza Hitman for never rarely, sometimes nice. always. And she said that a lot of, a lot of what she wanted to put in there was just the, the women, the young women not speaking to each other to sort of, to highlight the communication that they have inherently as people who know each other. And like, it's sort of the audience job to pick up on that and figure out, um, who they are to one another and how they're communicating. And that's sort of what I like about a lot of movies is I like movies that leave those gaps open that are a little ambiguous because it makes me just start thinking about them more. And I find Annie Baker to be one of those writers who doesn't, you know, you have to sort of peel back the layers to figure out what to make of what she's trying to say, especially after the flick. I think the two plays after the flick, she does that pretty aggressively. Um, I think the Antipodes is definitely the most experimental and the hardest to figure out. Um, I, I should mention, by the way, after I saw that uh, um, production of the Antipodes, I reread it and liked it just as much. What more? Because I was worried that I was like, maybe I just only like these if I read them, but don't see them performed. Right. Interesting. I don't know if I've read that one. I definitely saw it. Um, Same. I- I, I, I but I, I I haven't yet gotten hold of a copy of it. Right, I didn't love it. It's definitely my least favorite of the ones I've seen, but I okay. still appreciate, you know, what she's trying to do. And it, it's interesting to figure out what she's trying to do with that because I don't think it's very obvious. There is definitely a feeling that um, the setup and the beginning of the execution works, and 
from what I remember, maybe it doesn't make the landing all the way, or all the things she's pointing out doesn't get you all the way. But I mean, Eric, as an actor, have you ever basically there was a technique I've heard, or like once you've learned the text, once you know the subtext of something, it's this thing of like acting the subtext with without acting the text. Where like, have you ever acted a scene where you guys just try to improvise it based on what you know the scene is supposed to be without trying to say anything or something like that? Yeah, even as like an exercise. Or... There are various exercises that some directors, some actors, some companies like to incorporate into their rehearsals. Sometimes you get something out of it. Sometimes you don't. Um, it kind of depends. I feel like it might be a little less common in something like a new play where like figuring out what the right words are is actually like really important. I don't know if you've ever watched um, Slings and Arrows, the fantastic uh, I've heard of that, but... Canadian show. Oh, it's wonderful. And it's actually all available on YouTube um, through like a grant through the Canadian government or something like that. And it takes place at a Shakespearean theater festival and had huge, like with a nod to the Stratford festival, huge ensemble of characters. And one of the great scenes in, I believe the second season is there's a new play festival and a playwright is doing a reading of his newest work and he's very frustrated with his work so he tries to get the actors to come up he's like say what i'm saying but like in your words and tries to get like better lines out of it basically and oh, I feel like man i feel like what what that what the joke there is sort of like pointing at is is write this for me and going back to the question of like ownership and authorship because you know I think there have been cases, probably most famously with like a chorus line where you get a bunch of people and build a show together. And then weirdly, only this person and this person are getting credit for it. Um, I mean, that's a big reason I, I asked just because I've been witness to like the, the collaboration is it, it seems like people I mean, I, I, I love the idea that on stage writer is more king it's even more so than say like TV, but like that's true in America. I think that is definitely true. I think like in certain like European and like, like Russian traditions, the, the director is a little bit more of like a presence in the room. Um, hmm. But, but yeah, I mean, I think it, it always comes back to the text unless you're doing like improv and then it's just the performer. Right. I would say the only director I can think of that has had that success in America is Ivo Vanov, who like just truly, to me, he sucks all the attention away from everyone else, including the playwrights, because he's usually just writing his own version of those plays. Sure. What, what plays has he done? I'm unfamiliar. So he does a lot of revivals. Um, he does a lot of adaptations of films. He did a scenes from a marriage uh, play, really, which I did not see. I think the only thing I've seen of his, he did The Crucible, um, and it was very long. I feel like it cut a lot of The Crucible's text out. It, um, was, it was a lot of like, I mean, there was like a wolf on stage at one point. At some point, the girls actually fly as if they're really witches, 
Um, when I when I saw that production, there was a like very um, intense looking guy sitting right next to me, and in that moment, he leaned over to me and went, "I don't think that's a real wolf." And <laughs> went, back, went back to his seat, and then a solid. 10 seconds pass by and then he leans in again and goes it's some kind of dog <laughs> which it's yeah. sad one of the great memories that i have from that production um but yeah that was a production that ended with the young girls flying around like witches with aka undermining the point of the entire yeah. <laughs> But, but I mean, he he did he did a network on Broadway with Brian Cranston, um, where he like actually filmed live like the cam there was a camera crew like live outside on the street being projected. Like he does a lot of projections, and I do think it's interesting. It's a very European style of okay. theatrical experience, which is I think I don't know more AV Club to me than theater. <laughs> Sometimes because didn't he also direct that? production of view from the bridge that had yeah. mark strong in it that was like pared down very simple it just got straight to the story and it was really really beautiful and then there are things that he does where i'm like oh this feels kind of like the worcester group but like mm -hmm. maybe in dutch and with a bigger budget right um, yeah, right before the pandemic he had a west side story revival and he infamously cut i feel pretty from the huh. yeah. Well, it's it's also yeah. not cinematically like that's going to have a revival anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, yes, it was weird that we were supposed to get two West Side Stories in the same year, and then neither of them really happened. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I think that yeah, he his his style is very, I don't know, feels very masculine to me in a way that's a turn off. Mm -hmm. Annie Baker doesn't have much on her IMDb, but like I've read in an interview where she mentioned that she she's 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 written in Hollywood for a bunch, mainly for health insurance. I don't know how much has been produced um, beyond her episode of I Love Dick, which I want to talk to talk about in a second. But um, I she mentioned a pilot that was about that she'd written that was about um, life on a commune in Bolinas, California that never got made. Wow. I um, about that. And she was asked a bunch to like adapt her plays into movies. And she gave this really cool quote I love. She said, well, if you wanted to do it one long shot with no close-ups, and they were like, you can't have a movie that's one long shot. But now that we're talking about it, I actually am interested in making a film that's one long shot for two hours with no close-ups or change in location. And especially if we're talking about Chantal Ackerman, like, I totally agree with her. I totally want to see that movie. I think it could work if she writes it as a screenplay and not as a play. I mean, well, she makes it work. Her, I mean, yeah, like yeah, yeah. you have to have proper choice and like make it work. But yeah, yeah. I, it's interesting. You know, there's a lot of play adaptations uh, in contention for the Oscar season right now. Um, that I think I he, I, I don't know Tyler. I've 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 got on my top ten list like the last three episodes, but two of my top four are Hamilton and What the Constitution Means to Me. Interesting. This yeah. Year. Yeah. I'm not even considering those. I mean, I'm talking about like, you're like talking about, 
my rainy. There's one night in Miami. Um, I oh, just put no, right. three, which is an original screenplay, but it, it's just a two hander. Um, two people fighting for an hour and a half in a in a nice house. Um, and of all of them, I think Malcolm and Marie works the best because it was written and directed by someone who works on film. And um, one night Miami is 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 sort of different. It feels like an amalgamation. Um, Ma Rainey, directed by George C. Wolf, who's a great theater director, probably not a great movie director. Mm-hmm. Boys in the Band, I you know I appreciated it for what it was, but William Friedkin's is much better than Joe Montello's is going to be because he knows how to make a movie. Um, yeah, and so I think you know Jean Delman is a really great film and it doesn't feel like a play like i don't think that that could work as a play because it, it feels like it's controlling time for you it but feels it like it's controlling, controlling time. you also have to be like you're it's you have to be so close to that character that character so close to the camera for it to work i just think that like she would get lost in a play you know on stage doing the mundane tasks that she does for three and a half hours but i do see i think that there's a very clear through line between Annie Baker and John Delman and even Fanny and Alexander as a, as a long, a long fan of Fanny and Alexander after all the shitting on it. I did earlier. I do. It's funny. I've only seen, I've only seen the TV version. So I've seen the five hour version, not the the three hour film cut. I I made the commitment on scenes for marriage uh, to do the TV version of that before I saw the theatrical. Right. Fanny and Alexander, I saw the theatrical and I haven't seen the TV version. I mean, Fanny and Alexander feels like it it feels more, most like his sweetest fairy tale type of film because it's about children growing up. Um, Yeah. And and I think a lot of like, I know Wes Anderson's a big fan of it just because of like the production design standpoint, because like it feels that innocent. It comes from the children. Right. So um, I mentioned this earlier. I do want to talk about her episode of I Love Dick, which she co-wrote with Heidi Schreck um, from I Love or What the Constitution Means to Me. Um, I rewatched it last night and I was struck by this idea of like it's four monologues, but at the same time, it's intensely cinematic. Like it feels like not Godard level essay cinematic, but like it's very like, you know, the main shot is the character talking to the camera, center lens, looking straight at it, telling them a monologue. It's four monologues. But in the background, they're talking about their past, and the past plays out, and then you see some of that come out while they're they're doing this. And I, don't, I'm, I guess my question to you guys is, if she starts making movies, if Annie Baker starts directing movies, what do you think they're going to be like? Um, the I Love Dick episode is so... It's tough to me to think of that, even though the two of them have their names on it. You know, I still think it's a result of a writer's room. Um, I mean, she's like, she's like a consulting producer on the show, too, as well. Right. I mean, she was definitely in the room. And I think the Antipodes was inspired by her experience in that writer's room as not being. OK, that makes great, the, a which lot of illumination I, going on. Um, and Heidi has had a lot more television experience. She was on. She was on uh, Billions, even. Yeah, she was writing and she was writing on Nurse Betty while also like in a show. So she, there was like she would run from like work to go like act at night. Um, I mean, I can sort of I mean, I, I see maybe not as dour as Eliza Hitman's films are because they're so heavy. But the, uh, her Hitman's movies are so verite. 
Like I still yeah. think like she's going to be very composed in her frames and things like that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that a little bit of like the performance style in Eliza Hitman would probably okay. transfer over to, you know, Annie Baker's hypothetical films. Um, I mean, I kind of, I, I sort of hope if she does do a film, it's not something she directs herself because yeah. I think she does work really well with, that collaborative process. I mean, with Sam Gold and Lila, whose last name I don't remember, Eric knows. No, you uh, don't. Yes. Um, I went to college with her. That's okay, the- there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate, I don't know. Well, okay. What is she collaborated with? Like, cause she's, she's written a lot for Scott Rudin. If she has a good collaboration, do you think it could work? Yeah. I mean, I'm, yes, I, I I mean, yeah, I think it's good. Why not? But, you know, I I also don't know that I know what it would be. Mm-hmm. Part of me feels like Annie is so smart and so specific about all the choices that she makes that I almost wonder, and I don't know how exactly this would express itself, I feel like she would go into that process realizing what the expectations were or like, you know, I'm sure there are even plenty of people like talking in her ear about like how this will work and this won't work in your form. And I feel like she would be, you know, I I feel like there would be a certain amount of subversion of expectations. So, I mean, someone at the top of their game, you got to imagine like we can't imagine what it's going to be like. That's why it's going to be innovative and interesting to watch um I, I'm but I mean do you guys think she's going to do something because like on her I can't remember where I heard it from I think it's her WTF episode she did but she mentioned that Louis CK asked her to co-write Horace and Pete with her yeah and right. she said and it sounded like she considered it and said no but like no I mean this I love dick thing is the only thing of hers that's been produced in film that I've seen Right. And, and from my understanding, it was not a great experience. So I think okay. that maybe okay. that, which I think is what the Antipodes is really about. Is well, about I mean, does that, that, does that add to this idea? Like she may not get something on film eventually and stick with the stage. I personally don't feel like I need to see an Annie Baker film. I mean, if she wants to do that, I hope it happens. I hope that she can, you know, make money to buy a house somewhere. But aside from, uh, aside from like getting a paycheck larger than working off Broadway, um, no, I mean, I think that she's thriving where, where she is. Um, and also really like paving new roads for herself. I mean, my reading of the plays that we've mostly been talking about is kind of like that, the flick was kind of, for me, sort of the height of the thing that she was doing with Circle Mirror Transfer- Transformation and the aliens after that. And with John, she s- started to kind of like deconstruct what that was. And then with the Antipodes, she deconstructs that. So like with all of this very carefully observed behavior and these very like Chekhovian stakes and interactions playing out with John, I feel like it's that, but it's also introducing something more than that, something more than like the, the, this natural world full of well-observed people. We've got 
these like supernatural elements, these mystical forces that everybody is like kind of acknowledging, but kind of not. And it's all very secret and obscure. But while that's happening, we still have these relationships playing out. We still have stories and interactions. And then with Antipodes, I feel like it explodes that so that we're left with these people in a room that we don't know that much about. We don't know what their deals are. We get some sense of how they're interacting, but like all we're left with are these stories. And stories about stories and stories about myth. Yeah. And it just, it, it like is collapsing in on itself in a way that like I found like very intellectually interesting, but theatrically a little less satisfying. But Ellen, uh, my wife, Ellen, loves the Antipodes. I think that's maybe her favorite play of hers. Well, you're also pointing to the reason why John worked. I mean, I didn't see John uh, again, repeated. I, I can't repeat that enough. I don't live in New York. But John worked for me on the page so well because it, it expanded. And um, the deconstructed, the, the deconstruction built on what you're talking about. And I can see what you're saying with Antipodes. Did you guys have any uh, last thoughts that you guys wanted to mention about Annie Baker? Um, I would say that, like, if she does do a movie, I would want it to be... I, I don't know. I guess I... I it's hard for me to imagine uh, a movie industry in which Annie Baker gets to make the movie that Annie Baker wants to make, you know? Um, which is why I see her sort of as a writer for hire. Um, I don't. I don't want to be too negative or shitty, but I feel like Tyler, you and I had similar thoughts on the most recent Charlie Kaufman movie, and yeah. the fact that like he needs a collaborator, and it's an intensely yeah. great writer who's worked well with other directors. Like, right? Is like, that the scenario you, that's going to translate what's going on in his head? Because he can't do it. Have either of you read his novel? No. I have it. We're. I have it. I haven't gotten into it yet. It's seven hundred pages. <laughs> I have a friend who copied, who like proofread it. And so I was getting, I got like texts from him like a couple months before it came out. And he was like, this is a lot to get through. <laughs> There's I'm, our, the past guest on the episode, Glenn Kenny had a, a capsule review it recently where he talked about, he thought the book was brilliant and he was just amazed with it. And then he watched, I'm thinking of ending things and it retroactively made him think badly on the book. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, am really excited to read it, but I do not envy a person who is serving as like a proofreader or anything of the that kind right. for a work by someone such as him. Um, possible like spoiler alert. I don't know how this works for p future episodes. I'm planning a future episode on Charlie Kaufman's writing in the last 10 years, including his pilots, his last two un um, unproduced pilots. So, yeah. Well, and also, yeah, that would be really interesting, especially because you know, some of his screenplay stuff that sort of didn't end up making it into the film is bananas. That The, the early drafts of being, uh, being John Malkovich with yeah. like the giant, um, what's, like what's the giant disguises pumping or yeah. Yeah. No, there. <laughs> yeah, no, that would be fun. Um, Eric, did you have any last thoughts you wanted to say about Annie Baker's work or the flick in general? I just think that she is such a delicate 
writer and that delicate seems like a good word even being a reader and like helping for a week with a production of circle mirror transformation this was years ago like even in that kind of less formal for me setting and reading all of these lines for people that are not right for me to play you can just feel how thoughtfully crafted all of these moments are and i think it's crafted yeah incredibly incredibly uh wonderful like gift for actors and i mean i i definitely probably before anything else i look at her work as an actor even though i've written some and i've directed a little bit too but i just love the attention paid to these characters and i love the way that they go um that that we get time with them to like really see who they are and and how they're interacting um the other anecdote that i that i that i will just share is that i am friends a bit with alex hanna who played the dreaming man and skylar in the original production Okay. And we haven't really talked about the play that much, but one thing that I thought was really interesting that I hadn't really thought about is it premiered at Playwrights Horizons and then it moved to the Barrow Street, which is much smaller. And so they had to recalculate the number of and length of the rows of seats in the set. And so they almost had to restage huge, like completely huge parts of the play because of the traffic patterns and like, I need to be here by this point. And when do we cross each other? When does this moment with the mop happen? They would measure blocking with like seats and stuff like that, seat numbers and things like that. Right. But you know, I'm sure that they've had all of that very specifically mapped out, but then if you that's move that's yeah. two thirds that size, everything changes. Yeah. I mean, I, as um, I'm thinking right now of like having to clean a smaller theater versus the bigger theater and being like, or the the dreams I used to have, like, I don't know if you guys have work dreams, but when I worked at a movie theater, the one work dream I had over and over was cleaning a theater and the screen kept being equidistant where it just kept getting further and further away. And I kept having to clean the theater going on and on and on and on. So, um, Shane, what, what, real quick, I, I wanted to ask you this. Is, do you have a memory of, is there a weirdest or grossest thing that you found in the theater during your time working in a theater? There's a few, and I think I feel bad because I feel like I've mentioned this on, on past episodes, but the most infamous one was um, the, you, theaters used to double up. And so like you'd show um, a, an adult movie and a kid movie back and forth. And I remember finding like a bottle of liquor after a screening of what was about to show Rugrats in Paris. And then I realized it was Waterboy. That was just someone had brought some liquor into Waterboy. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we've, we've, there's been diapers and stuff like that in theaters. Um, my favorite story I love telling over and over is, it was um, actually, as this goes with Avery, cause it, it was, it was really early on. Um, uh, when I first worked at the theater, I remember distinctly that, I don't know if you guys have this thing with work when you take new jobs where like you always feel hated for like the first month. And even though I worked at a theater forever, it's longer I, than that for me, but yes. Yeah, or John Stewart always described it as the where's the salt phenomenon um, for working in a restaurant. 
and I what I did was uh, I made comic strips for everyone after like two weeks where I just made fun of our local franchise and that that wound me up. But during I want to say it was during this two weeks. I think I've told the story on here before. This little girl, uh, this mom and this little girl were trying to at concession, and the mom was ordering, and the little girl kept grabbing her crotch and trying to get her mom's attention, and the mom ignored her and kind of shooed her away and kept ordering. And finally, the little girl just gave up and said, maybe made an audible noise, like, oh, and like a puddle of urine then just appeared underneath her in front of concession. And that's the thing, like that is nowhere in like the top 100,000 most gross movie theater stories. So yeah. Yeah. Um, Eric, thank you for asking me that. Yeah. No, hey, uh, very curious. You, I mean, you're, you're the... Ten, I, I don't know how many years I, I, I gave up piling up. It was, it was, I was a, I was a lifer for a long time. It felt like. Did you do dinner money? Did you have what? a scheme? No, but we had a thing where uh, we traded passes for free food. And I remember when a manager switched over, he found me one day. I remember like I had to sneak in the side door with like this giant bag of red lobster that I had traded for like four free movie passes to the manager of red lobster. And he was watching me, and then he made this giant memo announcement saying he was we're, you. No one else had access to the passes, and the and the last two managers were totally like, "Yeah, you guys can get good food out of this. Like, you get a steak dinner out of uh, every like week or two or something like that." And now, nope, it's just the manager that gets that shit now. Wow. Uh, she That's... she nailed she nailed a lot. She nailed a lot in this play. <laughs> I'll give her that. Well, at least you didn't throw a. Young, emotionally vulnerable coworker under the bus. Or did I'm trying to think if I did. I don't think I did. Um, I mean, it, it sounded like you didn't, but if you did, then you I, I, I didn't. But I was also someone that would have uh, said like something along the lines of like, "There's been no American movie that's been great since uh, Road Warrior," you know, and Road Warrior being a you know really strong American movie. So I probably would have said that at that time. Um, uh, Eric Gildy, Tyler Coates, thank you guys for talking to me about this play that I know nothing about and have never seen. Thank you guys for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me.